Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5. Hear God's word. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. We're in the midst of the Epiphany season now, that season after Christmas, between the birth and the public ministry of Jesus. The church year celebrates the life of Jesus, beginning with his uh, birth and moving now into his um, the time between his birth and his public ministry. This Sunday celebrates Jesus' baptism in the church year. So uh, these verses in Ephesians 5, they tell us that we need God's light, uh, but so often we don't want that light. We'd rather not have our messed up desires and priorities exposed to God's piercing glare. But the same light that guides us to truth and lets us discover delightful things in God's world, that same light points out our mistakes and our flaws also. But if we trust God's forgiving mercy, then we'll come to Him anyway, knowing His blessings and His favor that go far beyond our awkward failings. So let's confess our sins before Almighty God. I encourage you to kneel as you're able, and I'll pray our prayer of confession this morning. today. Let's pray. Lord God, we've read this story of Nebuchadnezzar. It is a compelling uh, story that shows us your sovereignty. As we meditate upon it for a few moments, uh, Lord, give us uh, attention, give us devotion uh, to your word. Help us to understand and to know how this is uh, written for us and for our sanctification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So a Reformed Basics sermon series. Here at Christ Church, we call ourselves a Reformed Church. Now, the denomination that we're members in is called the Communion of Reformed and Evangelical Churches. But people have all kinds of misunderstandings about this. We use names and labels to try to be clear, but they often mislead us. I remember growing up in Dutch Reformed West Michigan, where there were two churches in every village for a dozen miles around me. Two churches. There was a Reformed church, and there was a Christian Reformed church in every little village. And for too long, when I was growing up as a little kid, I misunderstood what that was all about. And I thought that when you were little, until you became a Christian, you went to the Reformed church. And then once you became a Christian, you would con- you'd be promoted, kind of, and go to the Christian Reformed church. 
These labels sometimes mislead us, misguide us. We're not, we're not clear what it means. Uh, that's, that's one example. Uh, when it comes to the Reformed label, uh, I've often heard uh, people who don't know all the different groups and theologies in various churches, when they, when they hear the word Reformed, uh, they often think of Reformed school. So they, they wonder, what is, is the Reformed Church some kind of juvenile rehab? What's going on with the Reformed Church? Hopefully that doesn't ring true. <laughs> so let's, let's uh, clarify a bit. When Martin Luther protested Roman Catholic abuses in Germany in 1517, uh, Luther unleashed a flood of reform in other countries too. And a generation or so after Luther, there were several Protestant movements. Uh, some disagreed with Luther, uh, others just emphasized different things. And one of those streams of thought was the Reformed, led by men like Martin Bootser and John Calvin. So during Epiphany this year, we're going to take several Sundays now to consider the main ideas uh, that Reformed people uh, find in the Bible. Uh, the Bible has some key themes, and different groups, different theologies will emphasize different things. Uh, these are the themes that we see as, as primary in Scripture. So we're starting with sovereignty. God has complete control over everything that exists. That's the sermon theme. And God uses that control, that power, for his glory and for the good of his people. Hopefully that became clear as we read that long passage in Daniel 4. It's a sermon in itself, this story. God's sovereignty is powerful, and it's personal, and it's purposeful. And just to give you a quick rundown on that before I go into my notes, uh, consider the, the power of God... Uh, to bring down the king of kings, Nebuchadnezzar. He ruled an empire uh, for, that stretched uh, around a, a quarter, a third of the globe, whatever it was. It was a large empire. This is not just one king of one country. This was the guy nobody could stop on the earth. But God's power can bring down any, and he says that himself at the end. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God's sovereignty is powerful. It's also personal. Notice that in this vision that's given, uh, the key is in Daniel's interpretation, where he says, this tree is you. <laughs> this isn't just some cool dream that he had that's, oh, that's something interesting that God's telling me. It's about me. It's about you. So it's personal. And it's also purposeful. The, the, the result that comes out of this is that Nebuchadnezzar, instead of walking in pride, gives praise and glory to God. So that's the, the quick and dirty rundown here where I got these th three points. But I want to spend some extra time on each of those points and consider uh, in Scripture uh, what these mean. God's sovereignty is powerful. Uh, in the dictionary, it says, if you look up sovereign, right, we have these <coughs> kind of churchy words. Sovereignty is one of them. But it's a word that's, that is generally used in, in the world. You have a sovereign who sits on a throne. Uh, literally, to be a sovereign is to possess power. Some, uh, I forget wh which it was. I guess it's a British coin of, of yesteryear that, where you could have a coin that was a sovereign. right? If you have a sovereign, a coin, if you have a $100 bill in your pocket, that's, that's power. There's power there, right? That's a smaller picture of it, <coughs> but it's the same idea. So every Christian, every theist, really, who believes in God will assert that God is all-powerful. When we think of power in the world, we, we think of tanks and missiles, or we think of politicians with clout and influence. Those are both forms of power. 
in the news this past week, it's been interesting to see in the impeachment process, uh, a great power struggle going on between the Senate and the House, right? And Mitch McConnell in the Senate limiting the House Speaker's power and setting his own terms for how the Senate trial is going to go. Power struggles going on. And throughout history, uh, wiser or more cunning men uh, have thought to ask, who is the power behind the throne? Who is the one uh, putting men on the throne? Somebody with money or influence or both, usually. But Christians will say further than that, that God is the ultimate power behind every throne. We often set those against each other. The, the worldly wisdom will say, well, it's the big donors who are actually the power behind the throne. Well, in an earthly sense, there's some truth to that. But there's a deeper sense in which God is the power behind those powers, behind the throne. God is able to bring anyone down and sometimes does. So God rules kingdoms. So we see that in, in Daniel 4. We see it in Jeremiah 1, the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. He, he says, Jeremiah, I've set you uh, over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down and to build and to plant. And he, gives, he says, Jeremiah, in a sense, you've got that power because you're going to pronounce the fall of Israel. You're going to pronounce the rise of other nations. That God's doing that. And he's predicting it's going to happen in Jeremiah's prophecies. So we see it in Daniel chapter 2 as well. Could have looked there where Nebuchadnezzar has another dream about the kingdoms that are coming. You're this gold kingdom. Then a silver kingdom is going to come. And then a bronze. All these kingdoms are coming and God is doing that. God rules over the powerful. So if he rules over the powerful, God rules over everything else he has made. The Bible does this often. It states the most extreme case and says, if that's true, then by implication, everything underneath that is true too. So if God can rule and control Nebuchadnezzar, who can't he? That's the basic point in Daniel chapter 4. Isaiah 40 puts it very poetically that God sits above the earth and all mankind are like grasshoppers. Love that picture, kids. Think of all of, all of mankind. I don't know if you've seen the Star Wars movies where you've got the, the clones, this huge, vast scene of thousands and thousands. I kind of think of that picture. All of mankind is like grasshoppers compared to God's power and might. So uh, God stretches out the heavens like a curtain, Isaiah 40 says. See, what the Bible's claiming there is not that God is just the biggest and the strongest thing in the world. Not that might makes right and so God gets his way all the time. That's not the point. No, God is outside of the world. He's different from it. He made it. It's like a house builder who becomes a housekeeper. And he goes into the house and he sets the curtains and makes the world, the house, just how he wants it. That's what God does with all of creation. So uh, God is uh, powerful in this way. Ephesians 1 uh, is an important verse, 1 verse 11, that says about God that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there's nothing that happens that, that got out of God's control. Oops, that slipped by me. Nothing is happening like that. We saw that in the Catechism, Westminster Catechism. Uh, whatever comes to pass does so because God ordained it so. He governs all his creatures, all their actions. 
And, and this is the point where Reformed Christians assert more than other Christians, other theists. Most people will say that when it comes to man's choices or great evils and tragedies, that God kind of backs off and he, and he leaves us uh, to ourselves. Right? The Holocaust, that, that happened because of Hitler, they say. God wouldn't allow that. If you press them, they may say, well, maybe God allowed it, but God wouldn't ordain such evil. And what they're doing is they're trying to preserve the goodness of God, right? That God is not the author of that evil. And that's certainly right. But the Bible also says if there's a disaster in the city, has not God done it? And that's where things get hard for us. We, we want to pick one or the other of those things. But we have to say God foreordains everything that comes to pass. The Bible says that. And we have to say God does not do evil himself. The Bible says that too. It's hard to understand both of those things together, but they're both true. Well, anyway, that's God's uh, sovereign power. And we need to move on uh, quickly here to personal. God's sovereignty is personal. So we've been looking at the rise and fall of empires. We've been thinking about hurricanes and holocausts, galaxies, the big stuff, right? God is powerful enough to make and control all those things. So again, think of that how much more argument. If God orders everything in his world, then he orders you. And he orders your body, your family, your thoughts, your desires, your choices. God's sovereignty is intensely personal. Again, Nebuchadnezzar, that tree is you, O king. And that is going to make a difference because the tree got chopped down. So God's sovereignty is personal. God ordained that on January 11, 2020, a certain man and woman would wed joyously. A woman that grew up with many of you. You knew her for years and years. We didn't see that day coming 10, 15 years ago. God had it in mind from the beginning. God sovereignly selected that on this day, 17 years ago, my wife would have our second child. Providence. But he also decided on September 29, 2019, that a niece of mine would die in a tragic car accident. God ordained that as well. It doesn't get more personal than this. Life and death and marriage. If you think the doctrine, doctrine like the sovereignty of God isn't relevant to your life, please reconsider the truth of the Bible. This is you, O king, God says to Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, the Bible claims this not so much with abstract propositions. We, we see that some places in the Bible, but it's also in this story in Daniel 4. Here you have the man with the most earthly sovereign rule of anyone at the time. And what happens? He sleeps. And he has a dream. That's two of the uh, two pictures of helplessness. You're not sovereign. You're not in control, in command when you're sleeping. And especially not when you're dreaming. I don't know if you've ever had those dreams that are disturbing. And then you realize that you're dreaming and you can't really stop it. I don't know if you've ever had that before. But we're not in control in those moments. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar has. And then the content of the dream shows further that his rule will be taken away. 
His hair and nails are going to grow long. He eats grass. All these pungent details that really stick with you. Again, this is an extreme case God gives us. If God can control Nebuchadnezzar to that extent, then this same God rules over every psych ward, every palace, every beast, every detail in your life. God directs our lives. Proverbs 16 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. There's a a great uh, passage in Narnia at the beginning of Prince Caspian, where the children get pulled into Narnia at the beginning. And Peter then comments on that. He says, you know, it's a little disturbing to realize that you're not the one whistling for the genie to do things, but sometimes the genie in the other world can do things to you. Like, get me pulled into Narnia. Exactly. Lewis is making the point that we're not directing our own lives. God pulls us places sometimes. And this starts to be a problem if you don't believe in the good God of the Bible. That, that people don't like this. We'll get into that in a moment. First, though, how does that fit with free will? Right? Aren't we free to make choices ourselves? Well, it's certainly true we have the ability to go right or left. Um, just when I had this wedding last night. A lot of planning and work goes into a wedding, right? So, uh, but we need to remember the Lord is also directing our steps. And again, we reach the limit of human understanding there, and we decide to just choose one or the other. But the Bible asserts both. We make real choices. We're not just puppets on a string. And God ultimately directs the course of the world and of our lives. Uh, Proverbs 21, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God turns the king's heart wherever he wants to. There again is another how much more argument. If God can turn a king's heart, however, then he can turn anybody else's heart, however. That's part of the argument there. Well, there's more on this. In Romans 9, we see God uh, talking about how he dealt with Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He does the same to Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel 4. Did you notice that, that at the end of the prophecy, Daniel uh, gets done, and then he basically exhorts the king. He says, so break off from your sins, and maybe this won't happen to you. And then the next verse, a year later... 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar is still walking around saying, what, look at all this I made. This isn't this awesome. Isn't this all for my majesty? He didn't listen at all to the prophecy. God had hardened his heart in that way. And all of us, apart from God's grace, are, are likewise trapped in the pride of our heart. If God doesn't break in with an epiphany of truth, we won't come to trust him. And that's a hard truth to accept, and so God has Jesus say that himself for us. Jesus often says these hardest things for us to accept, I think, to help us. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. We need God to break into our lives. So God directs our life circumstances. He directs our desires and our choices, even our faith itself. These are very personal things. Uh, and to, again, to the mind not used to God and His ways, these are this is all very distressing. I think we forget that sometimes. We've we've grown up in this. We understand these truths, most of us, 
we tend to accept them because we hear they're coming from the Bible. And they are, that's all true. But this is very distressing if you don't trust this God. What's he going to do with all this power with which he can mess with my life however he wants to? But we trust a good God. This takes us to point three. God's sovereignty is purposeful. Purposeful. We see two goals that God has in Daniel 4. One we saw already, Daniel's appeal to the king in verse 27. Turn back to God. So one goal is, is to, God has is to return us to himself, to reconcile us to him. And we see that in, in the rest of the church year. We just came through the Christmas season, right? When God takes on flesh, he's conceived in a woman, born a baby. And the goal of all of that was to reconcile us to him. We, we sing that in the carols, right? God and sinners reconciled. That's the goal. So God's goal in, in messing with our lives and directing our lives isn't to just tease us or to torture us. It's to bring us to him for blessing, to bring us to the one who made us so that we can be set right as we were supposed to be. The second goal we see in Daniel 4 is in verse 34 and 37. And there Nebuchadnezzar praises God before everyone. God's goal in ordering his universe is to bring glory to himself. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. Those he saves praise him with their lips and lives. And we see God's mercy and his grace at work as we compare what we deserve with the blessings that we receive. And Romans 8 points this out as well. I should have had us read a couple of those verses uh, where it says in verse 28, all things work together for good for those who love God. That's a strong statement of God's sovereignty being purposeful. God's working everything together for our good, for those who love him. It can be hard to hear that sometimes when we're going through hard things. But it's a promise to believe on faith then. That this accident, this disease, this trouble, is God working something for good in me. We, we, we trust it as true because it's in this word even when it doesn't feel true in our troubles. So God's uh, sovereignty is purposeful. Well, uh, coming to a quick close today, the application of all this is best said by the Heidelberg in, in question 28. It says, what, is, what good does this doctrine do us? We can be patient in adversity. We can be thankful in prosperity. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. That again, that's what God does with his control in his world and in our lives. He holds us in his hand and doesn't let us go. We're safe. We're secure. So if life sometimes has you wondering about the goodness of God, I urge you to learn all you can of him in this book. He's told us so much. He may not answer your every specific question, but he reveals enough that we can safely trust him in the long run. Well, a lot more can be said about God's sovereignty, obviously. That's why I call this Reformed Basics. So, one sermon per topic like this. But here we know God has complete control over everything that exists. And he uses it for his glory and for the good of his people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and for uh, compelling stories that uh, stick in our minds that we know the truth 
that you are uh, the great and all-powerful God. When we see the, the powerful and the great in the news around us, men like Nebuchadnezzar, who seem to have all power uh, with no one stopping them from their wicked deeds. Lord, we know that in your word you show us a different picture, uh, that you are a God who will bring forth justice, uh, who will bring forth a suffering servant, who will work and struggle and be present by your spirit, bringing about justice in your world. Lord, we long for this. We ask that you would strengthen us in faith to this end. Finally, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word and the light of the world, and we sing as he taught us to pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.